All right, have a seat. Wonderful to be with you. Since the last time I spoke in chapel, we've had an addition to our family. I want to show you a picture. Oh, yeah. We have a girl. Of course, many of you know my youngest son, Joel. He's on the right there. He married Abigail June Wilson Pruitt. Yeah. Our oldest son's on the left, Jordan. And uh, it's just a delight to be with you. I wanted you to see my good family. Yes. In fact, Joel was home one time and he was asking about these banners and he said, I wonder if I'm in that picture anywhere. And his mom said, nope, you're not in it. But your dad and I are. And I said, no, we're not. I've looked at those pictures every, every time I'm in chapel. I, we're not in it. She goes, yes, we are. I said, are you sure? I'm positive. And I said, how can you be so sure? Because she said, because I'd recognize your bald spot anywhere. Let's see if I can get my pointer out here. There we are, right there. My topic today is the Holy Spirit and discernment. What in the world is that? Why do we need it? And if it's really all that important, how do we receive it? Lord, help our hearts to get quiet around this truth. The Holy Spirit wants to bring discernment to the body of Christ. And I pray that we will be right in flow with you now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me set the stage just by making sure we're all using the terms in the same way, all right? So discernment is the ability to judge well. You're aware of something and you make the right decisions about it. In the Christian context, it's perception in the absence of judgment. So you, you learn of something, but you lack the judgment yet with a view to obtain spiritual guidance and understanding. I'm going to suggest that these are God's one-two punch in this process. Now, my premise is simple. Luke describes the believing community in Acts discerning what the correct action should be through their experience with the prophetic. Now, what's the prophetic? The prophetic is a catch-all word I'm going to use in this context. Imagine like a bucket or a box in which we put all things related to how the Holy Spirit engages us and how we learn what the Spirit is trying to do. So it's our interaction with the Holy Spirit. It includes prophets, it includes prophecy, and other prophetic type utterances, or even experiences. We see that the prophetic not only includes prophets speaking to a group, of believers, but also includes personal revelation or even insight. So it's a big use word I'm trying to bring to us. So we've got discernment and we've got the prophetic. Most of the time, the prophetic occurrence is not clearly labeled in scripture. By that, I mean it happens and you have to detect that it's happening when it's going on. For example, Peter's announcement to the lame man in Acts 3, the condemnation of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, Stephen's vision of Jesus, chapter 7, Philip guidance by an angel and transport to Azotus in chapter 8. Paul's encounter with Jesus, the directions given to Ananias, and even the healing of Aeneas and Dorcas all in chapter 9. Instructions given to Cornelius and then Peter's trance of some sort concerning the clean and the unclean in chapter 10. Instructions given to Paul throughout his missionary travels, and even why Paul and his missionary team would leave Central Asia, cross the Aegean Sea into what we are going to call 
the European continent. Why did they do that? Well, each of these episodes possess prophetic aspects without directly attributing it to the prophetic knowledge and its connection to discernment. So it happens, but it's happening as Luke is writing along the story. Clearly, Luke sees the prophetic, whether spoken or in the form of dreams, visions, or directives, as a defining sign of the Spirit's evidential work. Now, what do I mean by evidential work? Well, we can't see the Spirit, but we can see the Spirit working. We see evidence of the Spirit working or we become aware of a situation. So it's a defining sign of the Spirit's evidential work and as a source of divine communication. Consequently, in Luke's writing, I'm going to narrow primarily to just Luke's writing of the book of Acts, but in Luke's writing of that, the line between Scripture and prophetic word is blurred together. Now, by blurred, I mean it. they come together and they work so closely if ever we need a discernment, it's now. The social ills of that plague our times continue to remain unresolved. I, I, it, it's been decades since we solved a major social ill in this country, let alone whatever the church has tried to do about it. I'd like to testify that we're winning, but it saddens me to tell you that we're, the church is losing in this regard. Uh, we've lost a number of prominent leaders. We're, we are losing people. We're losing influence. We're losing our saltiness, if I can use that expression. Some might even say it's lost, but I believe it could all turn around if we could only learn to discern what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, Jesus' words come to us prophetically in John's writing when he says, whoever has ears let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But this type of hearing has to go beyond audio detection. This challenge calls on us to know what the Spirit means or what we are supposed to do about it, a process or act that we call discernment. Now, I'm convinced the root of the problem is not our, that we can't hear the Spirit. I think we probably hear, my suspicion is that we hear quite well we hear God moving, we sense something, we know, oh, I feel prompted to do this or whatever it might be. My guess is that we hear fine. The real problem is that we have no idea what the Spirit's voice means. We need revelation, you see. We need discernment. The complex issues of our times cry out to us for help, for resolution, for solution, but instead we fan the flames of division and confusion because we are unable to discern our role as reconcilers in the world for Christ. Paul is so direct about this, he said he has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. I'm not sure he's thought that all the way through to you. He's given us that job and we want it to be his job, but he says, no, it's yours. It saddens me to report that we've lost our prophetic voice as the body of Christ. We've lost it because we focused on personal prophecy as the norm, that is, if we even practice it at all. Now, it's nothing more than popular psychology, wrapped up with a little spiritual twist about it. We tell people, oh, you're going to prosper, you will be bountiful, God is going to fill your whole life, just keep giving more. Or all of our problems will be solved if we elect a certain group or even our favorite official. But haven't we learned that charismatic leaders and political ideologies cannot and have never been able to resolve the challenging issues of our day? If they could, they would have already done it. Luke describes the believing community of Acts discerning the correct action through their experiences with the prophetic. But before we dive into that, I want to build a foundation 
a theological foundation in which we can let this idea of discernment, how does it come into our lives? So I'm going to give you two foundational theological places to stand on, all right? Foundation number one, God is a speaking God. Everybody say that with me. God is a speaking God. This foundational principle has revolutionized my way of thinking about how God speaks to his people. The writer of Hebrews says God spoke in various ways through the prophets, but he has in these last days spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Jesus characterized scripture as the law, the Psalms, and the prophets from which God speaks to the present community. So how do you know that that's how he meant it? Because he continually reminds those listening to him, he is not the God of the dead, he is the God of the living. So you see, for Jesus, God didn't spoke. He didn't spoke back. He didn't talk back then. God is speaking right now. This is why he declared over and over again, you've heard it been said, but I say to you, right? That's what you heard been said, but now I say to you, because God is speaking in the present tense. The first century community of believers characterized scripture as the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. It was a living word, you see, not in the past, but right now, in the present. Paul insists that God speaks spiritual words through spiritual means. Or quite literally, we are taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. They are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2. In Paul's view, God is speaking from the heavens and the Spirit is, you might say, translating for us. God is speaking. How do we get it? The Spirit translate it or maybe you'd say he's relaying it or he's conveying it. God is speaking, the Spirit is translating, but we are not discerning what it means nor what we should do. As a result, we are paralyzed and unable to help a lost and a dying world. Our actions or even our inactions demonstrate that we do not fully understand that God so loves the world. Can you let that get down in your heart? God loves the world and everyone in it. Our inaction only demonstrates that we do not fully comprehend that yet. What scripture demonstrates is how our speaking God has entered human history and forged a people devoted to the kingdom principles that Christ taught. The prophetic voice of God's people exercised within a body of believers devoted to one another and to the work of Christ kept God's voice in the present tense. It was never an old word. Do you realize most religions in the world speak of the gods from the past. The gods were in the past in a time before time. They spoke and they're, it doesn't speak today. We're always trying to get back to what they used to say. That's how most religious systems work in the world, but not, not this doesn't happen in the Abrahamic traditions. God is a speaking God because he enters into history and time and is speaking to us presently. God speaks to his people through Christ. Christ speaks to his church through the spirit using both our awareness of scripture and the prophetic voice of his people keeping God's voice in the present tense. This is certainly the way that Luke presents the matter throughout his gospel and most specifically in the book of Acts. God is a speaking God. That's foundation one. Foundation number two, discernment is by and large a function of the community of believers. That is the body of Christ. Unfortunately, we have restricted the community's prophetic voice and perverted it with a lust for superstar prophets who amass great followings but don't help us solve any of the social ills of our day. 
I mean, name one. Name one. What's worse, these so-called prophets tend to generate greater division rather than unity in any recognizable form. Moreover, these individuals rarely submit themselves to the interpretation of the community of believers. You don't have to look far in Scripture to get right on top of Paul's word to the Corinthian church. If someone has a prophetic word or you have some kind of utterance, two or three at the most, but let the rest judge it. But we're living in a time where we're giving the word we're interpreting ourselves. Time won't permit me to explain exactly how all that has happened or why over time. You'll have to take our Theo 360 class for that. But what is prophecy in the New Testament sense? I mean, I've been referring to it as the prophetic, but what exactly is it? I've, I've spent a number of years digging into this matter, and it was even part of my PhD studies and my dissertation which culminates in the book Theology Through Community, which I deal with this specifically in one of those chapters. But prophecy or prophetic experience is the immediate, relevant, applied word of God. In my view, that's what the prophetic is. The immediate, relevant, applied word of God. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute. Are you saying that this is a substitute for scripture? No, not at all. That's why I said it's the applied word of God. It's immediate in that it's right now. It's relevant in that it is occurring inside our own context and it's applied in that we're discerning it and then we're hopefully enacting it we're putting things into action this is where the breakdown is we're hearing but we're not putting it into action you see we're not being able to discern what's happening I think that's why Ian Bell who was the first uh, general superintendent of the assemblies of God our first fellowship leader in the early 20th century. He made this statement, it stuck with me, I found it in just one of his obscure newsletters, but he said, we must keep our skylights open. Can you imagine that? Somebody using that word in the early 20th century, our skylights open so as not to reject any new light God may throw upon the old word. We must not fail to keep pace in life or teaching with light from heaven. Because it's an immediate relevant applied word of God. It takes what scriptures teach us and it puts it into our context. We're not letting God use us as the body of Christ to discern what the spirit is saying. No, we want to either do that for ourselves. You receive something, what's the first thing you do? You want to tell somebody about it. Oh, I just had this revelation. I had this dream. I feel like God spoke to me. You tell them and the first thing out of their mouth is, wow, that's really neat, but uh, you probably, have you thought of this? And you're like, get behind me, devil. You go find somebody else, you tell them, God's just revealed something to me. Yeah, but you've not taken into account. <laughs> and after a while, we just say, I'm not going to tell them. I'm just going to work it out because I know God spoke. I'm going to step out on But that's what the problem, that's the very essence of our problem. We either want to do it for ourselves or we want someone to tell us what we already believe. Paul said, it's like people with itchy ears. They just want to hear what they want to hear. We clamor for people to tell us what we want to hear. Affirm me. I'm going to tell you a word from the Lord. Affirm me, but don't come along and say, well, uh, you know, you've not thought about the amount of money it's going to take to do that. Oh. Details, details, right? But this is not how God speaks into our world. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because that is not what we see demonstrated in the book of Acts. Imagine your life on this line and you see the dot there. That's you. That's me. This is where I am. 
And then God speaks something at a moment in time that's forward of where I am. Now, we do not know or understand when it is. We only know it's forward of where we are presently. It's a thrilling and exhilarating moment, I will tell you for sure. When you feel like you've received something and it lights up in you, it's like a, like a light bulb. It's like a spark. And we're in a service and the spirit's moving and someone gives a prophetic word and it lifts the whole room, you know, and we're thrilled by it. It is exhilarating when God reveals something to us forward of where we are. Yet there's one glaring problem with knowing something in the future. We lack all the requisite experience needed between now and then. And because we lack this experience, we are unable to accurately determine a course of action. We cannot know how to react. We do not know what to look for with any degree of accuracy, all because we lack the requisite experience between now and then. I mean, how could I, if God speaks to me something in the future, I am invariably going to interpret that based upon what I know right now. And so I'm going to start trying to move and manipulate and shape. And Okay, the Lord says, I'm going to go do this. And so I just start doing it. But what I fail to comprehend is that all of the experiences that are going to happen in my life between now and when that moment happens, I haven't had them yet. So I don't know how to react to that event. So what good is it to know something in the future? I mean, why should God give us this gift of glimpse anyway? And you may be asking that question yourself. Why, why would God tell me about something in the future if I'm absolutely powerless to do anything about it? Well, I'm going to shape my response in two ways, all right, followed by some examples from the book of Acts. First, and perhaps most importantly, the Spirit gives us a glimpse of the future so that when we arrive at that point in the timeline of life, we will know that God has been with us. And I mean to tell you, the peace and the sense of assurance that comes from that gift is incredible. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. It's a sign, you see. So that you will know that from this moment to that moment, God has been with you every step of the way. Because I can tell you from the moment God reveals something to you until it happens, it might just be next week. It could be 30 years in the future. And all of the things that are going to happen to you will do everything in its power to shape, conjole, push, crowd, and maybe even squash what you've seen. But God gets you through it. And when you get there and you realize this is what the Lord spoke to me when I was 18 or 19 or 20. You'll stand there in that moment and it will humble you. You will cry and you will say, God has been with me from that moment all the way to that moment. Second, the Spirit gives us a glimpse of the future so that we might learn what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Since you received a prophetic word and lack the ability to pro properly adjudicate it, the Spirit brings you into a community of believers to help you, uh, quote unquote, find your way. And that is sometimes not something we want to hear. We, don't, we want to tell people and then we want to interpret it ourselves. But no, God says, no, I'm going to give you the word and others are going to judge. Remember how Paul framed that? If somebody's going to give, be prophetic, someone's going to give an utterance, let the others judge it. The others have to give shape to it and determine how you're going to see that, how you're going to find your way in it. So we end up with parents, we end up with teachers, we, we end up with friends, and they say, yeah, I don't think God's calling you to that. I just can't see you doing that at all. And we, we, we feel like it's spiritual oppression, and instead it's God's way of shaping us into the people we'll need to be so that when that comes about, we know God has been with us. In Acts 1, Peter, Peter prophetically states, Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, 
who became a guide for those who were arrested, for he was numbered among us and he was allotted with this share in this ministry. Let another take his position of overseer. The, the neat thing about this particular passage in Acts 1 is that Peter is quoting another person who's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to say something in the first place. Both of these passages come from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. So what Peter does is he appropriates the scripture, but he puts it in their context. You see, it's the immediate, relevant, applied word of God. And he's saying, Judas left us. What are we going to do about that? Peter proclaimed the word, but it's the community of believers who decide on the nominees and the method for selection. It's not Peter. It's the whole group doing that. In Acts 4, after the first arrest of Peter and John, they return to the meeting, a meeting with the believers, and someone prophetically prays Psalm 2. The first two verses of Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and fight against the Lord's anointed? By the way, that psalm ends with the destruction of everybody that fights against God. He will break them with a rod and iron. He will dash them into pieces. It's gruesome. Whoever fights against the Lord's Messiah, they'll be destroyed. But the community of believers applied it in the exact opposite direction. They call on God to grant them great boldness and to proclaim the message of Jesus and to release his mighty hand of healing. This story at the end of chapter 4 culminates in the house shaking and the spirit falling. With an explosion of generosity and sharing among the disciples and with a mighty uh, outpouring of extraordinary, miraculous healings and exponential growth. Read it, chapter 5, verse 12. That's how that whole narrative ends up. Instead of them saying, Lord, we know they fought against you and they even killed you, so we pray you will judge them all. They don't do that. Remember, it's the immediate, relevant, applied word of God. They quote that scripture. Somebody prays it and somebody writes it down and gives it to Luke. He puts it in the narrative. And they decide what we're going to do with this is pray for something wonderful to happen here. All because a community discerned a new way to appropriate envision Psalm 2. In Acts 6, the Greek-speaking widows of Jerusalem are being neglected when it comes to the daily food rations in a city that prides itself in feeding all the widows. I mean, this is a big event for all of the, those who live in Jerusalem. When the apostles get wind of it, they confess they can't do anything about it. If they're prophetic in this at all, it's that we can't take this on. It's too big. So they charged the community of believers with the task of selecting seven of their members to oversee the work. Did you hear what I just said? The apostles don't pick the leaders. The community of believers pick the leaders. And once they get them, the apostles say, do you have them? Who are they? And they pull them all forward. And the apostles say, come on, let's gather around and lay our hands on them. You wonder where we got that tradition? Right there. They gather around, lay their hands on them. And in what has to be a transference of apostolic authority, it comes upon these individuals and God raises them up, not just to help feed the widows, but we know at least two of them turn into great preachers. <laughs> Stephen's going to end up being the first one martyred and Philip's going to go down and preach a great revival. All because we saw a need, the Spirit gave some leading, and then we got in, uh, some discernment about what to do about it. The most famous prophet in the book of Acts is someone you've probably never even heard of. His name is Agabus, and while visiting the church in Antioch, Syria, he prophesied that a famine would come and dev devastate the region. That's it. That's all he says. He receives the word, but it's the church in Antioch who decide what to do about it. They take up a collection and send the money to the church in Jerusalem by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, who we're going to come to know as the Apostle Paul. In this same church, 
a group of prophets were fasting and praying and the Lord said through one of them, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them. A prophet gave the word, but it was the church that decided to pull together the resources needed and send Barnabas and Saul on what would become the first uh, organized missionary endeavor, if that's what it's going to be. Acts 13 and 14. On their second missionary journey, Paul receives a prophetic dream of a man in Macedonia across the Aegean Sea. They're in Troas in what we now call the country of Turkey, Asia Minor, but they're on the, they're on the western coast of it, and they're trying to decide where are we going to go? We don't know where to go, and Paul has this dream, the guy saying, hey, come over and help us. And so they get up the next morning, he shares it with them, and read the text, we decided we're going to go. Not just Paul, but they all decided with one voice, the thing to do is to leave Asia Minor and head to now what's going to be known as the European continent. We did it. Us did it. Do you see the pattern emerging? Someone receives a prophetic word or has a prophetic experience, but it is the community of believers that determine the course of action. It's God's one-two punch for the knockout. How do we get it? We receive it prophetically. It brings the presence of God into the now And then we work together to understand what it means. God is giving us discernment. Do you see that? Years later, Agabus, along with other unknown disciples, in fact, it tells us as Paul, once Paul leaves Ephesus, he decides he's heading to Jerusalem for for what's going to be his last time. And we think what he's wanting to do is take an offering uh, from the Gentile churches he's been at back to, to Jerusalem. And so he says, I'm going back to Jerusalem. And from the time he leaves Ephesus until he lands back in Uh, Canaan of Galilee there, Uh, every church he's in has a prophetic word. The Holy Spirit has revealed that you are not to go back to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. Don't go back to Jerusalem. I mean, with one voice, they all say the same thing. Agabus finally comes along, meets up with him at Philip's house, who has four daughters who are prophetic. No doubt they all had something to say to Paul too. He comes up to him, pulls his belt off, ties Paul's hands up, and he said, this is what's going to happen to the man that goes to Jerusalem. And he, Paul throws those off and he says, I'm ready to die for Christ. And what Luke writes now, this is uh, the biggest, one of the biggest conundrums in the book of Acts because he doesn't resolve the story. The spirit has told the churches, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul is emphatic that the Lord wants him to go to Jerusalem. So you know what they say? Luke writes it. So we said, let the will of the Lord be done. And they take their hands off that manner. There's no more prophetic words given to Paul about this. When he gets to Jerusalem, the church there tries one last effort, a Hail Mary pass of sorts. Like, Paul, everybody thinks that you, you despise the traditions, the scripture that we find sacred. But if you'll take this group of men, they're wanting to do a rite of purification at the temple. Why don't you go with them, pay their entrance fee to this event and participate with it. That way everybody will know that you still believe the truth of scripture. Scriptures that we find we hold to. And so he does it, but it doesn't work. Paul is arrested in the temple grounds, and he's going to spend the rest, if not all, of the rest of his life. Most, if not all, as a prisoner. All because he, he could not let the church help him define how could he fulfill this ministry of taking this offering. And because of it, he ends up out of circulation. Now you say, well, I don't think that's fair to beat up on Paul. Now he's dead. He can't come defend himself. But, but friend, all we need to do is look at the text and see the pattern of how it happens. And when it comes to Paul, he doesn't. In fact, he's going to write in his letters, everyone has forsaken me. Only Mark is with me now. No churches have helped me, except one, the church at Philippi. 
They sent me an offering several times. He writes it in Philippians 4. But he is essentially the churches take their hands off because he doesn't want them to help him shape. Well, how does he fulfill this calling? He doesn't want to know. Remember what I'm attempting to teach you is how to discern the Spirit's leading. And I've given you two purposes for the prophetic. These words and dreams and spiritual sense. One, that you might know God has been with you all the way, every step of the way. And two, that you might discover what it means to be part of a body of Christ. I want the worship team to come back and join me. You know, when I was a student, I poured myself into reading scripture and committed, by, committed myself to understanding God's word. You realize if you don't understand scripture, what we have in the, in the printed text, if you don't under, grasp that in a, in a general sense and even more particularly, you cannot tell the difference between what is true and what is false. You can't tell the difference between should the church do this or should the church do that. So I would challenge every one of you to be immersed in what scripture is so that as we are a prophetic people and we're beginning to receive prophetic revelation. He's, I know he's speaking to you in your, in your dorm prayer times when you gather with your floor. I, at least I hope he is. But you see, it's not enough to read scripture. It's not enough to hear prophetic words. We need discernment to properly enact God's word in the present. Can't you see that if you would exercise the prophetic within a community of believers, that that process, through that process, the Spirit would lead you along a path of fulfillment. And if that's not incentive enough, do you realize that if we would work together to discern the Spirit's activity among us, what I call the Spirit's evidential work, it's obvious the Spirit is calling the church to help the world. He's crying out to us, help them, help them. Do you realize if we would do that, we would begin to heal many of the social wounds and woes, the abject brokenness of the world in which we live? Instead, we want Congress to do it. We want the president to do it. Or we want a different president to do it. And we, we can't even decide what we want to do. We're not even in unity within the church. And because of that, we... We just end up in the dark all the time. Why? Because we can't hear? No, I think we hear just fine. In my earliest years of ministry, I, I, I used to pray all the time, God, help me hear your voice. God, help me hear your voice. And I thought that was a righteous prayer. And one day it was as if the Spirit grabbed me and slapped my face. Stop praying that. You hear fine. Your problem is you have no idea what I'm saying. God would speak to me and I would go gung-ho. I mean, I... I was as zealous as they came, but I'd run over people. People would get wounded in the way. I'd make bad decisions and I'd scratch my head. I don't get it, man. This, the Lord told me. The problem was I didn't understand what I, and I needed to factor all that out in a body of believers. I thought the body was the problem, but actually it was the solution. Let's all stand. We're going to go into a time of worship here and I want to speak prophetically over you something. As many of you as will, come down here into the altar. We'll be in the right spot when it's time to start saying, come on down. Come on down. It's taken me 40 years to put this all together, to begin to grasp the infinite wisdom of God in placing us in community, in a body of believers to discern the leading of the Spirit. And I want Noe to start leading in this, this chorus. Just begin to worship with us. Come on. Yeah.
Yes, Lord. Mm -hmm. Sing it again. Don't sing it if you don't mean it. We got to make room. Yes, oh Lord. Now, Lord, how do we proceed from here? Well, in this instance, what I'm about to say to you is going to sound counterintuitive, but I, I, and I hope it resonates with your heart because I'll need your discernment of it to know if what I'm about to say to you is prophetic. We need to stop thinking globally about most things and start thinking locally about them. Because we think Everything has to be thought in global terms. We don't do anything locally because the global problem is so big and the church is so different all around the world. How could we ever come into conformity with one another? When a local problem is in our face, though, rest assured the spirit has a local solution with the global ramifications. Even Jesus' mandate to love your neighbor as yourself is essentially a local problem with a local solution. Have you ever thought of that? When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, it's a local problem with a local solution. But think of the ramifications it would have worldwide if we just did that simple thing. And I don't think all prophetic things are supposed to happen in this chapel service. They're supposed to happen on your floor with a group of men, with a group of women, Maybe men and women together meeting in, in uh, one of the meeting spaces around and they just get to worshiping, praying together. And a word is given and then they say, let's commit to discerning what we're going to do about that. You see, we've got local problems in our face. Homelessness is a problem we confronted every day in our neighborhood. Just walk out this, on the sidewalk and it's in your face. And I wish that a prayer meeting on the fourth floor of Carlson, a group of men, would receive a prophetic word, then discern a pathway forward to engage this epic unmet need. We have, for, we have poured thousands, millions of dollars, and we are no farther along. I wish we'd have an Act 6 moment where we'd say to the leaders, we got a problem. And they say, well, we can't do anything about it. What are you going to do? And we come up with something. We say, this is what we're going to do in our local problem. And if it only works here in Elliott Park, then you know it's the Lord's will. And it has a way of waving around the world. The Civil War ended in 1865. And it took this country 100 years after that for the Civil Rights Act to be signed into law. And the death of George Floyd happened only last year, 24 blocks from where I'm standing right now. That's a local problem. We used to be known where the Minnesota Vikings, the twins, home of Target, uh, the founding place of gold medal flower, not anymore. Not anymore. We're the epicenter of the Black Lives Matter thing and God has put us right here in it so that we could see it and say, what does the Spirit want to do about that? I wish a group of women on fifth floor of Miller in a prayer time and worship might receive a prophetic word and work together to discern a pathway forward to deliver us from this ugly stain on our city on our beautiful city. Are you hearing me? Lord, I pray this over your people now. 
Lord, let us be a prophetic people who discern what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Would you lift up your hands and say, Lord, let me be a prophetic people. Go ahead, team, lead us. Yes. Yes. Yes.